everyone. It's Sean. Just wanted to hop on before the start of the show to say that this week we are talking about some sensitive topics on the show. While we are addressing sexual violence, I do want to point out that the focus of the show is more on the policy side of how these cases were prosecuted and how the approach to capital punishment was influenced by the nature of the crimes. So we don't get into anything too in-depth about the crimes themselves, but the topic of the episode is capital punishment as it relates to sex murders in Canadian history. So just a heads up that that is the topic for this week's episode. Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Today we are going to talk about a topic that is out of my realm of research, not something that I have dealt with a lot. And it's interesting that I was notified that this book was coming out and it occurred to me that in all of my studies of Canadian history, when I think about all the survey courses that I have been involved with, whether as a student or as a TA, I don't think I've ever taught a Canadian survey, but the topic of capital punishment has never really come up. And I've always thought that kind of strange. And this book that we're going to talk about this week addresses that, the idea of Canada as the peaceable kingdom. We always like to set ourselves against the United States, particularly in a contemporary context. So the fact that capital punishment is not in place in Canada right now just seems to be something that we accept as it always was. But of course it wasn't, that the death penalty in Canada was in place from Confederation, officially abolished in 1976. There was a moratorium placed on the death penalty in 1967. So in that century in which capital punishment was part of the criminal code, there were a lot of people who were convicted of a capital crime and were executed in Canada. And a certain subset of those is the focus of a new book by Carolyn Strange, which is The Death Penalty and Sex Murder in Canadian History. And Carolyn Strange is a professor at the Australian National University. And she looks at the sex crimes that resulted in capital convictions through the first century following Confederation. And what she looks at is how people reacted to sex crimes compared to some other crimes, the way in which these cases were prosecuted, the way in which bureaucrats who were ultimately deciding some of these cases dealt with them, and really just gets into the way in which the law was applied. And she uses the term discretionary justice. And we get into how that principle applies to these cases through the, the first century of Canada post-Confederation. So this was a very interesting discussion. I enjoyed getting into the idea of, of these policy decisions in a little more detail with some more nuance. So let's get right into my discussion with Carolyn Strange. 
All right, and joining us now all the way from down under where it's the next day, uh, Carolyn Strange, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Sean, how are you? I am good. So uh, we're recording this. It's Monday where I am. It's Tuesday where you are. It's madness. <laughs> the, the, the way the time zones work. I have to say the like the international dateline and crossing over that is one of the more surreal experiences that I've ever had. Uh, yes. It's, well, it's always interesting to get messages from tomorrow, but I'm a historian, <laughs> so I try to convey messages from the past. Right. So uh, so let's get into that with the book. Again, it's The Death Penalty and Sex Murder in Canadian History. First off, this is a topic that, for me at least, as someone who has studied mostly 20th century Canadian history, doesn't get too much attention. So why were you drawn to this particular topic? And why did you want to go through and, and put it in a book-length project? Well, I suppose anyone who Googles me would find that I've been writing about the history of crime, justice, and gender for, well, about over 30 years now. And I've written on the history of the death penalty, and I've written on the history of discretionary justice. But one of the experiences I had that was different from many historians is that for uh, 11 years, I worked at the uh, Center of Criminology and also at the Department of Law at Carleton University, so the Center of Criminology at the University of Toronto, as it was then called. And I had, as a result of that, exposure to people who are at the cutting edge of policy work. And that encouraged me to try to think as a historian about how best I could mobilize knowledge about the criminal justice past to inform the way we think about the present and perhaps to improve the ways we think about moving forward in the future. So this is something that is quite important when we think about policy regarding the kinds of murders that tend to get us most upset, that is murders that involve sexual violence and murders involving sexual violence toward children, the elderly, and the most vulnerable. We've seen this again and again that in the uh, recent past, since Canada has abolished the death penalty, it's sex murders that have spurred pressure to bring back the death penalty, a kind of very visceral urge to do something to show community revulsion over these kinds of killings. And so I wanted to say, all right, if, if this is always a vulnerable pocket of Canadian politics in regard to the death penalty, that it could just take another Bernardo Homolka case, let's say, or a Clifford Olson case to bring back the death penalty. We need to know more about how it operated in regard to these same sorts of murders in the past. I just want to make sure that we define the term sex murder as well before we really get into this. So is it a case where it is a, a, a crime, a murder, where there's something else that say without the murder, it would also be prosecuted as a crime type thing. Like basically it's a, a rape murder essentially if if you're combining those two things. That's a really important question. And that gets to how I determined which cases to analyze. 
If you look at the cover of the book, and it should be out on the 15th of October, you'll see that the cover image is of the Peace Tower at the Houses of Parliament in Ottawa with a noose over it. And this is a reminder that this is not a strictly legal book. It is a book about the politics of the death penalty, the politics behind who was actually executed and who was not. Now, this gets to your question, because if you look in the criminal code, which is what perhaps a strictly legal scholar might do, you won't find sex murder in there. So you find murder and you find manslaughter, you find infanticide. So I used a definition that is not strictly legal. I defined those murders in the ways that contemporaries understood them. So yes, some of them did involve uh, assaults, which included what would otherwise be determined as uh, rape, but there were many others where it was unclear whether or not a sexual assault as defined elsewhere in the criminal code had taken place, but where it was uh, suggested by the victim's condition that some sort of uh, coercive sexual encounter had been attempted or thwarted, or that the murder was committed as a way of trying to cover up that offense. So it is broader than a strictly legal def uh, definition. It is my definition, and I talk about that in the introduction to try to give the reader a sense of not just the kinds of cases that I look at, but also the approach that I take to the to the politics of determining what was understood to be a sex murder. So in looking at cases and going through capital cases in Canadian history, what is the scale that we're looking at? Obviously, these are horrible crimes. And you mentioned the Paul Bernardo, Carlo Homoka cases, and that's certainly a case that I remember from when I was growing up. And these are the sorts of things that that tend to get a lot of, of press coverage. So I'm just curious as to know the scale of cases that you're looking at through the period where capital punishment was part of the Canadian criminal code. So when you ask about scale, do you mean the actual number of cases or the scale of media coverage? Well, I guess both. Like, okay. so first of all, yeah, how many cases uh, are, are we looking at too? And is there a disproportionate media coverage on sex murder cases versus potentially other violent crimes? Yes. Well, that's an important question. And I came up with 61 cases and they were unevenly distributed over time. There were clusters of, of cases, particularly in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, many prosecutions of murders that were understood to be sex murders. And there was a different volume of, of coverage, largely depending upon several factors. First of all, in the late 1880s, we see a lot of coverage of the murders attributed to Jack the Ripper. And so there's worldwide coverage of those killings, those sex murders in London. And that meant that any 
uh, suspected copycat or potentially we had Jack the Ripper here kind of um, incidents got a lot of coverage, but it tended to be more demure than the coverage was in some of the, the British press. There are usually a great deal of stories when the victims are children, but that varied significantly. Most of the children were children of the poor. And if it happened in a rural area, it tended not to get as much coverage as if it did in an urban area. The type of murders that received a great deal of coverage were often ones where there was a uh, well-publicized police hunt to track down the offender. So sometimes they would slip across the border, for instance, into the U.S., or uh, they were people suspected of having committed more than one crime. And uh, they're also, as, as you might imagine, quite explicit racist coverage when those suspects were not Anglo-Celtic, were not white. But that, again, sometimes ratcheted up in periods of, of wartime or uh, when people were uh, assumed to be drifters and posing a danger to the wider community. So there wasn't any one particular factor that uh, you could say, all right, this is going to cause uh, a major panic uh, in, in the press. Um, and, and that's something that I uh, actually take on in, in some respects, the idea that every case of this nature is likely to spark a moral panic. Some that you would have thought might uh, had very little press coverage. And how much of that is based off of the number of cases that you're looking at? You mentioned it's 61. And I'm just curious from a statistical standpoint, you know, how easy or hard is it to draw out conclusions from that sample size, particularly when it's 61 over a pretty large period of time that you're examining? So the, the grouping of events could be altered or the way they're treated could be altered by other sociocultural events going on at the time. So just, you know, what is the challenge of, of trying to draw out information from that sample size? That's a, another good question that gets to the issue of methodology. Now that sounds rather dry and uninteresting to most people. <laughs> and uh, hopefully your listeners are not dozing off at this very moment. <laughs> but if I had just looked at the files themselves, and the files contain qualitative evidence, that is, transcripts of uh, trials, judges' reports, bureaucrats' memoranda, letters in favor of or against uh, the person being executed. So this, this gets to the kind of evidence you need to understand decision-making. However, none of the participants in any one particular case had the scope to look at the patterns over time. And this is one of the advantages of historical research that can quantify certain characteristics of cases to determine patterns that historical actors themselves were not aware of. Now, that's not to say that there weren't statistics that were generated through inquiries that began in the 1930s and especially in the 1950s, where uh, politicians started to say, hmm, you know, what, what did we 
what are, what have we normally done in cases such as this? And then they send their bureaucrats back to, you know, add up the number of cases of, of a certain variety. Um, but if you do it in a really rigorous way, which I, I did um, in, this, in this book, combining qualitative and quantitative analysis makes up for the limited observations one can make based on either type of source. Now, as you say, 61 cases across a century is a very thin sample. However, there are different uh, statistical uh, techniques that one can uh, apply with small samples. And I was always interested in comparing the fate of these 61 offenders to the larger cohort of male offenders, uh, as well as the specific sub-cohort of male offenders who committed robbery. Now, they were also, or burglary, so they were also subject uh, to a high rate of execution. But because I was using quantitative analysis, I could determine that even compared with that group, men who committed burglary and robbery, sex offenders, sex murder offenders, were more likely than any other to be executed. So that's an example of what you can do with quantitative evidence, even with a small group of cases. Just in general, to sort of push that even a little further in a more broad sense of how or what is the percentage of capital cases that were put forward during this time, during the century that you're looking at, that would fit into the sex murder realm? Like what what percentage are we talking about roughly of Canada's capital cases that fit into this category? Well, that's in the first paragraph of the book, actually, because it it asserts that you cannot look for significance simply by looking at numbers. So there were over 700 people sentenced to death and only 61 uh, of them were sex murders. So in that sense, as a proportion of all people uh, sentenced to death, it's tiny. It's it, it doesn't have significance. But you mention the Bernardo and Homolka case and your memory of it. One case can can tip policy, uh, can uh, inspire politicians to say we need to bring back the death penalty. This is what happened, for instance, when Emmanuel Jacks was was murdered in seven, uh, 1977. Uh, there was, uh, you know, an outcry immediately to say this is this is madness. We should not have uh, done away with the death penalty. So a single case can be significant, let alone 61. Sorry, I, I was I was wrong uh, about that. I I gave you the the figure of over 700. It was oh, that's the number who were executed. It was over 1,500 persons were sentenced to death. Yeah, but the actual number who were. Executed. Who were executed, yes. Right. That, that's in the 700s. You mentioned earlier the notion of discretionary justice, and I'm really curious to talk about this idea because as a kid, at least, you're always presented with the idea that you know justice is blind and justice is equal for everyone, uh, but certainly that, that has proven not to be the case. So when you're looking at these particular cases... What are some of the biggest factors that go into the discretionary justice? And are there trends that emerge of particular 
groups of people who are particularly disadvantaged by the system of justice? Well, first of all, we have to get away from the idea that the law is just and discretionary justice is unjust. So discretionary justice derives from the royal prerogative of mercy. And so it's an ancient concept that whatever else the law might say in terms of the punishment due to someone convicted of a particular crime, there should be uh, a way of determining whether or not in this particular case there can be a more uh, beneficent, a more merciful outcome. So that's something that in strictly legal realms might be understood as mitigation of punishment, uh, but there is within the law the capacity for executive decision makers. So historically, a queen or a king, uh, then uh, effectively from responsible government onward, a, an executive council or an executive uh, body makes decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. So there has never been any period historically anywhere where everybody sentenced to death has actually been executed. So there have been ways in which, let's say, women accused and convicted of infanticide have been sentenced to death, but the consideration was that they might have been uh, suffering trauma after giving birth. They might have been an unwed single mother. They might have been raped. So they still have committed that crime, but the circumstances around it, the potential for the person to reform, the potential for the, uh, the person to go on and lead a, a, a crime-free life is often taken into consideration. Now, that does not mean that every act of discretionary justice is just. And that's what I trace in this book, that there are assumptions that go into the deservedness of the death penalty that have everything to do with the kinds of general prejudices that characterized Canadian history. So all of the decision makers who were involved in determining whether a sex murderer lived or died were white men. They were overwhelmingly Protestant. So any time they saw someone with the same kind of characteristics that they had, they were considering them in terms of the factors in the crime as soon as they looked at people who were outside their privileged groups they were using stereotypes and prejudicial stereotypes now again that doesn't mean that every afro-canadian every indigenous man every person from eastern or southern europe was executed either but it did mean that they had a much less likely uh, capacity to engender sympathy among the privileged circle of decision makers. And how much does the public reaction fit into that? Because I would 
imagine that a very strong public sentiment for the for the use of the death penalty for an execution would similarly go more towards those people who are outside of a certain privileged group. So does that then also serve to almost influence the decision makers that perhaps there's a stronger public opinion in certain cases that you have people who are outside of the decision makers core privileged group? Does, does that sort of work hand in hand in a way? Well, most of the time, yes. But the, the term you used outside is a really important one because I use outsiders in quite often in, in this book to underline that it wasn't just that um, people who were not Anglo-Celtic were all outsiders, drifters, homeless people, people who exhibited aberrant sexual predilections. These also could be people who failed to have a core of sympathetic advocates. So uh, sometimes, for instance, you would find uh, people who, who take on the best interests of people uh, within their religious group. And so you have strong representations on behalf of someone who might otherwise be despised. But if they're an insider, if they're part of a community, if they can draw on those resources, then uh, there was less uh, pressure. But in fact, in, in many cases where, um, where um, Afro-Canadians and Indigenous people were executed, there was just such a strong assumption that, well, of course, the wheels of justice will turn, that there wasn't a huge campaign to say, all right, we need this person executed. So again, it also depended on the status of the victim. So that went to the question of, well, if it's someone who, who is an outsider who kills another outsider, there's not a huge outcry. So it again, you cannot uh, just generalize. Uh, you have to look at the specific circumstances of each case. And that's, again, why I use qualitative as well as quantitative evidence. One of the things that struck me, too, in going through some of this was the idea that these are impassioned debates that are going on surrounding each case. And yet the people who are making the decisions present themselves, at least in the, the documents that they left behind, as being impartial and emotionally distant from the cases. And this is something that you bring up, that historians have tended to take the word of, of these individuals, that they were distant from the case, despite the rather impassioned feelings that were going on surrounding the case. So how do you then try to approach the way they are presenting themselves as the decision makers and claiming their distance and being completely impartial during the cases? How, how do you try to reconcile that with what you're seeing surrounding the cases and the impassioned debates elsewhere? Well, I'm not quite sure that I criticize historians for missing the fact that emotions and passions were involved at the very top of the chain of decision making. What I was really trying to encourage is that 
we tend as, as scholars generally, and so I would include criminologists and sociolegal scholars, to be looking at the public as the source of uh, impassioned debates and, and uh, irrational fears and so forth. What we do see when we look inside those capital case files is that that politicians are doing exactly the same thing. They're constantly saying that, well, the public might be up in arms. The father and mother of this victim might be baying for justice uh, of, a, of a grisly nature, but we are above that. Uh, we are we are weighing the various factors that we always weigh. So was the person drunk? Was, was uh, there provocation, et cetera, et cetera, as if they were able to detach themselves from those emotions. And so I think that's something that we can really benefit from is some of the work that has been out, done over the past 10 years or so on on the emotions of of elites not just the emotions of of the crowd and that's that's what i can discern by looking at the difference between what somebody says you know a, a minister of justice says before uh, a commission into capital punishment saying, you know, we, we just carefully and coolly look at all of these factors. And then you actually look at the internal correspondence where you see all kinds of very clear evidence in the language that they use that they are also uh, stirred as well. So I'm curious to talk as well about some of the broader trends that you have found in the work, particularly how social movements and cultural issues at any given point can influence these cases, because it speaks to this idea of how the decision makers are looking at the cases and, and how they might be feeling. So in what ways have you found that broader social trends can influence the way in which some of these cases get discussed by those making the decisions? One of the most significant changes that occurs over the century that I analyze here is the panic that is evident in coverage of sex crimes from about the 1930s and 40s into the early 50s that leads to the passage of sexual psychopath laws across the U.S. and also in Canada in the late 40s. So the sex criminal comes to be seen as a major danger and not just uh, the homosexual killer, but the sexual pervert, uh, the one who had abnormal and dangerous sexual desires of any nature. So this is something that I use to try to analyze why there is this cluster of prosecutions of sex murders in the 19. Uh, 40s and, and 50s in Canada. That's where you get uh, the biggest number across this whole period. So what that's suggesting is that prosecutors are not 
prosecuting for manslaughter, they're prosecuting for murder. And it also means, because I'm looking only for these in these 61 cases for people actually convicted of sex murder, it also means that juries are more likely to convict on the full uh, charge of murder. So it does indicate that over this period where sex perversion, sexual psychopathy is floating around in a whole range of areas from expert inquiries with psychologists and psychiatrists to uh, true crime magazines to coverage of sexual psychopath um, legislation in the U.S. So this is something that uh, J. Edgar Hoover is quite uh, riled up about, and Canadians feel like they have to they have to respond as well. They have to come up with specific legislation to try to fight this this modern menace. Is there a similar pattern in crime in general that this kind of mirrors or, or there's a shadow effect there where similar trends that we see, say, in armed robbery, for instance, during the 1930s, there's in, popu- in the popular imagination, you have the Bonnie and Clydes of the world and, and that gets a lot of coverage and there's a sense that it kind of builds on itself. Is there a similar trend that you've noticed in with regards particularly with sex murder? Well, this is certainly something that campaigners for sexual psychopathy legislation were convinced of, that it was these sorts of crimes were on the increase starting in the 1930s and into the 40s and early 50s. One of the things that I say, though, because I'm looking at sex murder, is that we have no idea what the actual incidence is. And that might sound odd because we think, well, murder of all offenses, that's that's going to be at least investigated, even if it isn't prosecuted. We only have to look at the uh, murdered and missing uh, Indigenous women and girls inquiry to get a clear idea that if you are not a high status victim, if there is disinterest among policing authorities in pursuing uh, allegations that people are missing, that's that's something that that just flags that um, there there's no way to be clear about the actual incidence of this kind of offense, even though we would think that any offense of that nature would, of course, be prosecuted uh, and leave, leave records. So we do know what behavior can be tracked in regard to policing, to coronial inquests, to prosecutors' decisions, to what juries are willing and not willing uh, to do, to see people potentially subject to the death penalty, and to what executive decision makers are doing. But we do not know the actual rates of these kinds of offenses. I also want to get into the idea of capital punishment in Canada, because this is a topic that I don't know if it's necessarily a third rail topic. I don't think it is, but it's certainly something that doesn't come up very often in contemporary political discussion and political debate. And yet the book does put forth or or look at this idea of capital punishment as 
part of a challenge towards the idea of the peaceable kingdom and the place of capital punishment within that. So how do you try to come to terms with that discrepancy potentially of Canada, of this imagined place of the, the peaceable kingdom versus the place of capital punishment within that space? I think this is... Uh... This is something that I saw quite a bit in the 90s when Canada was congratulating itself uh, for being so unlike the United States, where the death penalty was reintroduced in the late 70s and execution rates were going up in the 90s. And this was something that I was quite critical of because public opinion tracked almost the same in Canada as it did in, say, Texas, where the execution rates were very high, West Virginia. Uh, So if you look at what the populace actually feels and expresses as necessary to combat crime, it's not all that different from the United States. And that's the way that Canada tends to like to pat itself on the back for its civility, saying, well, of course, we're not the US. We did not bring back the death penalty. And uh, we, we believe that offenders can be controlled through other means. But that's something that is distinct about the context in which Canada did abolish the death penalty. It abolished the death penalty when three quarters of Canadians thought that it should be retained. So it was not a matter of public will that politicians in the late 60s and early 1970s responded to. It was on the basis of thinking that we had to move away from a historic reliance upon putting people to death. But more significantly in that particular context, Politicians realized they had to resolve the tension between retaining the death penalty and not using it. So from the early 60s on, people were sentenced to death, but everybody knew that the government was just going to commute the death sentence. So there was a real discordance. They weren't pleasing anybody. They weren't pleasing those people who wanted to retain the death penalty, and they weren't pleasing those who wanted to abolish it. So they tipped in favor of abolition, full abolition in 1976. But it was not as a result of Canadians at large being terribly evolved on the question of the death penalty. So as a political issue, then, how do we think or how should we think then of the death penalty within the larger discussion of criminal justice? Because I sit here and I think that and it's really hard to to think about it because I've never been the victim of any sort of violent crime. But there is this sense of retribution, I think, that gets associated with the death penalty of, of almost, you know, an eye for an eye type type of idea that I think you're right, that it goes against the idea of the peaceable kingdom in this imagined community that we have in this country. So as a political issue, how do we try to understand its place within Canadian history and really consider the discussions and debates that took place over 
the death penalty with regards to Canada's wider policies associated with criminal justice? One of the politicians most closely associated with support for abolition was a conservative. So conservative Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, who cut his teeth as a defense lawyer. And one of the things that bothered him throughout his career was that he believed that he had tried to defend uh, a man who was actually innocent and that this man was put to death. So this is something that haunted him, but it did not prevent him while he was prime minister from authorizing uh, through his cabinet uh, executions to go ahead. Now, after he was no longer leader of the Conservative Party, he was quite supportive of clemency efforts for Stephen Truscott. And what he said in reflecting on the Truscott case, which came up while he was prime minister. So Truscott was, his sentence was commuted mainly by his age. So Diefenbaker admitted later, he said if he had been 20, Truscott had been 20 years old at the time of his trial, he would have been executed. We did not give reprieves for that type of offense. And later campaigners against the death penalty uh, the death penalty's reintroduction, particularly Eddie Greenspan, said the same thing, that yes, if you restored the death penalty, you would see uh, offenders such as Clifford Olson executed, but you would also see people like Donald Marshall, like Stephen Truscott, that it is, it is a system, especially in regard to sex murders, that is subject to the idea that this offense is so terrible that the penalty should be murder. Now, there are many people who have advocated for the recognition of victims' rights who do take uh, a kind of vengeful uh, stance, saying there must be something as grave facing someone who might contemplate or perpetrate such a murder to respond to the gravity of the crime. But not all victims' associations translate the, the pain that they have suffered, the loss that they have suffered into a demand for the restoration of the death penalty. And so that's an important thing to remember. For instance, the 2015 Federal Act for the Recognition of Victims' Rights simply recognized that victims of crime and their families deserve to be treated with courtesy, compassion, and respect, including respect for their dignity. So it doesn't say because you have been a victim, therefore we're going to use your pain, your trauma uh, to justify executing the person we have found guilty for that offense. It does say that victims do need support, and I would absolutely agree with this. This is not a book that says, oh, the only victims have been people who were wrongfully convicted or dubiously convicted. Uh, it's a terrible thing to have something like this happen to someone you love, someone you're close to, your neighbor, anybody. 
but it is not something that can justify the restoration of the death penalty. So if I were to extrapolate from that, you don't think this will become a political discussion, a prominent political discussion again, that it it will come back oh, to the ballot? In some I way? absolutely do think it will. Uh, and that's something that distinguishes me from many people, I would say more people who have put their eggs very much in the let's abolish the death penalty basket, let's continue to have this image that Canada is uh, more evolved than other countries, especially uh, the states to the south. But I have always said in my work on the history of the death penalty that it is never abolished. It is in statutory abeyance. So there were there was huge pressure with the Emanuel Jacks murder, Ols- Olson's murders, Bernardo and Homolka's. There will be another one next year, another one two years from now, with a different government, with a different cluster of advocacy groups, with the impact of uh, social media, etc. We could see uh, pressure for the reintroduction of the death penalty. And there's nothing that would stop it. There's nothing constitutional, even if it was constitutional, constitutions can be revised. So this is why we need to know as much as possible about the way the death penalty operated in the past. Many people who call for its reintroduction think that it was only the most deserving who were ever executed, or it was only people who committed more than one offense or something like that, that there was a a real clear scale between the gravity of the offense and the actual execution. Whereas this book shows there were endless streams of disadvantage that resulted in the 39 being executed and the 61 being convicted. And a number of, as I say, very dubious convictions. Uh, Trust God is the only one who has had his conviction overturned. But there were three people who faced the death penalty and who were executed who had no defense counsel at all. So you have to, at the very least, say that's a dubious conviction, but the death penalty uh, was inflicted. So we need to know about that history, and we need to know about those people whose deaths were not counted as seriously. And the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls is the most important reminder of that. Absolutely. So a lot of contemporary concerns that are are definitely relevant to this book. So again, the title is The Death Penalty and Sex Murder in Canadian History. Carolyn Strange, where can people find the book and where can people find more information about your work if they're looking into this in in some more detail? You might put my uh, researcher's URL into your coverage that goes over all the work I've done. And uh, The book will be available from the University of Toronto Press and the Osgood Society for Legal History, I'm told, as of the 15th of October. So uh, I'm assuming that it will be in bookstores shortly after, but it will also be available as an e-book. Yeah, so we encourage everybody to check it out. And yeah, if you head over to activehistory.ca, I'll link everything there as well. So with the post that goes along with this episode. So everything will be nice and easily uh, found for anyone if you're if you're looking for stuff. So uh, Carolyn Strange, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a pleasure, Sean. Thank you. So there you have it. 
my discussion with Carolyn Strange, and I thank her for joining me all the way from Australia, like we said at the start. It was Monday night for me, Tuesday morning for her, and yet we were able to make it work. So if you're interested in this, I would recommend going and checking out The Death Penalty and Sex Murder in Canadian History. It is live today as we release this episode on October the 15th, and as Carolyn said, available hard copy, but also as an e-publication. So definitely check that one out. So that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Give us the likes, the ratings, comments, all that stuff helps other people find the show, helps the show grow. And of course, head on over to activehistory.ca. Check out some of the content over there, including every episode that we have ever done of the History Slam. And the show will keep rolling. We'll keep going on the weekly schedule for the foreseeable future. So if you want to let me know what you want to hear in the show, you can get in touch, historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. But until then, if you're up and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.